where do we get this idea that that we we somehow think that people are basically good? I mean, where does this come from? Are we are we born with it? Hell, thank you. Hell, okay. You just ruined my intro. Thank you. <laughs> this is great sermon. <laughs> no, I mean, we're not born with it. All right. Well, maybe, maybe we were convinced by that fourth century monk declared heretic from the Council of Carthage, uh, Pelagius, that we, we just kind of embrace his idea that, that there's no such thing as original sin, that we can somehow save ourselves by our own works, and we just kind of continue on with that. Or maybe it came much later. Maybe it was the, the errant philosophy of the 19th century John Locke or the subsequent psychological developments of Jean-Jacques Rousseau who, who basically said, you know what, we're born as a blank slate. We're born clean. We're born pure. And, and really, we become bad because we're nurtured that way. Right? You can either be nurtured for good or for evil. But at the beginning, we're, we're blank slates. Or maybe it's genetic, right? There's a lot of studies going on on that, you know. We want to blame certain aspects of our character on the, our, our physical makeup, our, our DNA, right? Very empirical, very cellular disposition. And so most people are born with some sort of good gene where they're basically good. And then you have a few abnormal, quirky people who just have bad genes and therefore they commit evil. But if that's the case, how can we really blame anyone for evil? Because it's, you, you can't do anything about it. It's just a natural consequence. It's just a natural effect. So evil in itself doesn't even really exist at all. Now, I wish that I could say that this idea, this false notion that the people are basically good came from Pelagius. Or that it came from the errant philosophy of John Locke or the, the delinquent behavior of modern psychology. But it goes back much, much farther than that. It was there and present when Peter swore to Jesus, though everyone would deny you, I, I will die, but I will not deny your name. It was there in all the warnings and, and judgments that were given to Israel. It was there. When Cain responded to God, am I my brother's keeper? Or when Adam said, this woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. The reality is that all mankind, every human being falls into this false notion, this mistaken belief that we are created, we are made basically good. If we do sin, it's not that bad. It's really inconsequential. Either it's not a problem at all because a loving God will just kind of overlook it and it's really not a big deal, or He will provide me with some simple steps where all I have to do is follow the formula and I can make myself clean. But we're not clean. We're not sinless. We're not basically good. In fact, it's just the opposite. Defilement comes from our hearts, and only Christ can clean our hearts. In Mark uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, we learn five truths about the nature of defilement. The first truth is that defilement is not naturally understood. 
Now, I, I, I wanted us to start reading in chapter 1 just for some context, so let me just kind of clue us in on, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 1, so we can be reminded of this context. Uh, 14 through 23 follows uh, right after this confrontation that Jesus has with the scribes and Pharisees over ritualistic purification washings. Basically, these scribes and Pharisees, they come and they question Jesus. He said, hey, why are your disciples not washing their hands before they eat? Why are they breaking the tradition of the elders? Why are they going against our set pattern, our set plan? I mean, do you not realize that they are defiling themselves and defiling other people in the process? You see, they thought that if you just followed the tradition of the elders, if you just kind of kept these purification rituals in mind, that you could make yourself holy and undefiled before God. They were living under this false notion that God's chosen people, the Israelites, were basically good. Right? All they needed to do was follow the rules and regulations, follow the steps and procedures that were laid out by the elders, and they could be right before God. They could be pure. They could be blameless. They could be undefiled before Him. They could not grasp that there's something much deeper that was wrong. That goodness is not according to man's determination. Man's design, man's standard. No, God is the standard for what is good. They didn't understand, nor did they teach that defilement comes from within. They thought that, that defilement was just the result of not following procedure, right? Not obeying the letter of the law. Or it's the fault of those unclean Gentiles that are around us. If we just separate ourselves out from them, then we'll be okay. And though they cared very much about defilement, they really, really did want to be holy, they misunderstood completely because they didn't understand where it came from. They thought that defilement was simply failing to keep the law. But they're not the only ones in this, in this text. Look at verse 14. All right? It says, And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Now, it's clear from this that the people hold the same beliefs as the scribes and Pharisees. They, they too, believe that if they follow the tradition of the elders, that they, too, can be clean. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to say, hey, listen up. Listen and understand what I'm saying to you. You need to pay attention to this, right? Because Jesus had just, he had corrected, he had rebuked the Pharisees and scribes. Now he turns his attention to the people. He gathers them around and he says, listen, you guys need to understand this. You don't get this. You don't believe this. And so you need to listen to what I say to you. They naturally do not understand verse 15. That there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Then he, if, if they had understood that, then he wouldn't have to call them to listen and understand, right? They would just get it. But instead they hold to those beliefs that, that have been passed down from elders, from generation to generation, that, that defilement is really just failing to obey the law. It's failing to, to keep all the rituals. It's, it's failing to keep myself far enough removed from those Gentiles over there that I'm now defiled. Again, they don't understand that it comes from within. But it's not just the scribes, 
Pharisees and the crowd that misunderstand. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that the disciples also don't understand the nature of defilement. It says that when Jesus had entered the house and he'd left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? He said, are you so dull? Do you just not get it? I mean, these guys have been called and appointed by Jesus. They followed him around for over a year now, hearing him teach time and time again. You think that this defilement issue hasn't come up yet. And not even that, he's actually sent them out and they have taught his message. And yet they still don't understand. They still don't get it. It still hasn't sunk into them. They still are following the tradition of the elders, thinking that defilement is something external. They don't get it. They all live under this false notion that you can be clean by doing a few steps, by performing religious ritual. And so, out of all the people that are mentioned in verses 1 through 23, only Jesus understands the nature of our defilement. He's the only one that really gets how this works, how deep this goes, how much of an issue this really is. They all live under this false notion that they are basically good. But this misunderstanding of what makes us unclean before God is not just limited to Jesus' immediate audience. It's also something that plagues us all. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 3.9-18 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't understand the nature of defilement. They do not understand that they are defiled. Now you might be saying, now Chet... These passages are talking about unbelievers. This is not talking about someone who has placed their faith in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, right? You thinking that? Well, (laughs) Scripture calls this natural misunderstanding, this natural mind, this sinful human nature, it calls it the flesh. And we war against the flesh our entire lives. There's never a moment in time that we do not cease having to fight against the flesh. Romans 8 makes it clear that we can live according to the flesh. We can set our minds on the things of the flesh. And those that set their minds on the things of the flesh are not able to please God. No, it is only when we are intentional to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit, that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh, according to Galatians 5, 16 through 25. And so when you become a Christian... You're not rid of this tendency to misunderstand the nature of defilement. Right? 
You don't learn something just because, like, a flip of a switch. You, you don't just get it. Like, you go into your classes. You don't just, because you open the book, you somehow understand, right? You still have to learn. You still have to get it. You still have to fight to know the material. And it's the same way with this issue of misunderstanding defilement. We have to learn. We have to get it. And our our flesh, it fights to keep us in ignorance. It wants to lull us to sleep so that sin can continue to have its way in us. We all naturally misunderstand defilement. Second, because we don't truly believe that defilement is a reality. Now, I'm guessing that most, if not all of you, I hope all of you, do not believe in the boogeyman. Right? Does anyone here believe in the boogeyman? No? I'm glad. Thankful. Right? So if you do not believe in the boogeyman, what precautions do you take against the boogeyman? Zero. Right? You don't take any precautions against the boogeyman. You don't believe it exists. It's the same way as defilement. And this is really dangerous, folks, because we can take for granted the gospel and, and continue to just think we're, we're, we're fine. We don't see defilement as a reality. If you don't believe that you sin or that your sin is inconsequential, then you won't recognize your desperate need daily, moment by moment, for salvation. You won't take precaution against it because it's not a reality to you. But defilement couldn't be a bigger deal because it couldn't be more real. To be defiled is to be unclean, is to be soiled, is to be impure or corrupted. To be defiled means that you are stained. You're stained. Now, you wouldn't go on a date or you wouldn't go to an important job interview without brushing your teeth and combing your hair and putting appropriate attire on, would you? Or brides. You wouldn't walk down that aisle you know, towards, towards your groom with this huge black stain on your otherwise perfectly white wedding gown, would you? No. The purity, the cleanliness, the spotlessness of your appearance must fit the occasion. We cannot stand before a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly pure God if we are defiled. And we are. We are all like brides that are slowly walking towards the altar with filth covering our dress. But you know, it's actually easier fix for that unclean bride. I mean, let's face it, you can all go and comb your hair and brush your teeth and put on something else you know, to fit that special day. You can go out and you can buy a new dress. You can follow the simple steps to make yourself clean and appear before them. But you can't with defilement. Because defilement is not external. If it were, we could clean ourselves. No, the problem is that there is a stain on our soul. It's a stain on our soul. This stain is what defiles you. And you, no matter how hard you try, you cannot wash it away. You cannot wash it away. It's really there, and ritual cannot get rid of it. Now, this is a much bigger deal than failing to obey laws or committing certain sins. All right? 
He's saying that there is something real within you, a stain that serves as a factory that produces defiling thoughts, defiling words, and defiling actions. This stain is acting to produce defilement. That is the ultimate issue. This is what keeps you separated from God, who is holy and perfect and righteous and pure. Revelation 21:27 warns that there is a day where we will all stand in judgment before God. The living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked, and all will stand in account before Him. And as God establishes His heavenly city to where His people will live, it says that nothing unclean will ever enter it. No one... nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have an eternal stain, this sinful nature, this attitude of rebellion against God that leads you to commit sins that defile you, you and you have not found that solution, you have not found a way to, to remove that stain, if you're not written in the Lamb's book of life, then you will be condemned to eternal separation from God. You will experience everlasting hell. That is the consequence of this untreated stain. This is the consequence of defilement. And it doesn't matter how close you stand to the truth. If it is not yours, then you are still stained. So this is serious stuff. These disciples are standing in front of the truth, and they do not understand. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that my stain is not that bad. Or that God will just overlook this blemish. You know, if He did, He would no longer be God. Right? He's perfectly holy. You just overlook the offense and he's no longer holy. Perfect purity must remain perfectly pure. Now, some of you are married or some of you have thought about married and getting married. And, and, and if you have, you've probably at one point or another, you've gone into a jewelry store, right? And you've gone in there and you're looking at these wedding rings. Of course, you're looking at diamonds of different flavors, different sizes, different cuts, all that kind of stuff. And once once the salesman knows that you are looking for a diamond, they are going to try to trap you. What they want to do is they want to get you into this little room that's off on the side where there is a microscope. And the purpose of this microscope is to convince you to spend more money, right? They go and they take you in there. They sit you down in front of this microscope and they say, hey, look at this diamond. They show you this diamond. You're like, oh, that's pretty good. Look at that. It's, It's shiny. Yeah. They're like, well, look at that thing right there in the middle. That's an imperfection. That's a blemish. Oh, this diamond, it's, it's slightly discolored. And then they'll bring in another diamond. Same size, same cut, but pure. Right? You look at that, I was like, oh, wow, that one is sparklier than the last one. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't see that yellow color in, in that one. And look, that, that blemish is a whole lot smaller. Right? I, 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 I get that. And so you look at that and you're like, yeah, I want, I want to buy the more expensive diamond. It's prettier. You know, it's more pure. Right? And we associate something. We pay a lot of money for things that are pure. Right? There's something that is intrinsic. We understand about worth. And we will pay more for the things that are pure. Right? We have purebred dogs that come with license and we pay lots of money for those. If we don't care about purity, we'll just go to the pound. Right? You know, so we understand this. But God is like a diamond that's the size of the universe, all right? 
And if you put the microscope up to any point of that diamond, you look and there is no blemish. There is no discoloration. There is no disfigurement. All the cuts are perfect. Everything is absolutely pure. And when you look at that and you look at any other diamond, any other diamond pales in comparison to that perfectly universal diamond. It doesn't matter how big it is. The Hope Diamond is trash compared to this, right? And so it doesn't matter how good, how big, how pure, how worth this, this other little trinket is. It matters nothing compared to God. God is the standard of perfection. God is the standard of holiness. God is the standard of cleanliness. God is the standard of good. And nothing, no matter how good or bad you think you are, nothing compares to that. That is the standard. Any imperfection, no matter how great or how small, will keep you from God. And we understand this. Each person here is defiled. Each person is stained. Your defilement is not the result of outside factors. It's not the way that you were raised. It's not because of your circumstances. It's certainly not because of your personality type. It's none of that. You cannot blame them. You cannot blame other people. You're defiled because your soul longed to be defiled. And let's face it. 99.9% is not a passing grade with God. His standard is himself. He says, be holy as I am holy. And that's not just rhetoric. He means it. And he certainly doesn't mean, don't be as defiled as the next guy. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're okay because you're not as defiled as as Chet is, or you're not as defiled as Keith is, or you're not as defiled as Adolf Hitler is, right? You are not justified by comparison. God's standard is himself, his perfection. Be holy as I am holy, right? Not be holy as the next guy. And so we cannot claim ignorance here, all right? We, we can't just say, oh, I, I, I didn't know God. I I thought that this was okay. I thought that I was basically good. No, that's not going to work. The book of Romans is clear on this. Deep down, we understand. We don't fully understand it, but we get the sense that defilement is a reality. We know deep down somehow that we are defiled. We know that God's decree for those who practice such things deserve to die. And we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice such things. Right? We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We, we know that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God's perfect demands, God's perfect standard, God's perfect commands, God's perfection Himself. And that, that the wages of our sin is death. We understand that. Not fully. And we try to suppress it or ignore it or say that that stain's not really there, it's not really that bad, or all I need to do is a few things over here. But the reality is we get a sense of that guilt. We, if we're all honest with one another, we know that it's true. Deep down, we all have a plaguing sense of our stain. We all have an awareness of the reality of our defilement. And so, though defilement is not naturally fully understood, there's, it is a reality and one that we can sense. But third, that cannot be overcome by human effort. 
Now, it ought to be clear from two weeks ago when we looked at verses 1 through 13 and what I've covered so far that this idea of cleaning something that is defiled simply by washing, washing its exterior is just, it's dumb. It's pointless. And back in verses 6 and 8 through 8, Jesus calls those who teach such things, he calls them hypocrites. And he applies Isaiah 29, 13 to them. He says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. In vain do they worship God, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they added to God's law with these traditions of the elders, these traditions, these safeguards that they had set up. In fact, he says, they actually reject God's law in order to establish and to keep their traditions. And he just told the people in verse 15 that nothing external can defile a person, but only what comes from within. So tradition of ritualistic purification washings is useless. It is vain. It is hypocritical. It is not worship that is honoring to God. All their efforts to clean themselves from this defilement is absolutely a waste of time. It's like going in and finding that bride in the bathroom sobbing as she's desperately trying to scrub that filth off of her dress. Or better yet, it's like going into the bathroom to find the groom frantically scrubbing a tattoo off his face. It can't be done. It's futile. Now that's all that I would need to say on this point, except that Jesus takes it one step further. In verses 17 through 19, it says that when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus gets alone with his disciples and once again he has to explain this parable that no one truly understands until he teaches them. Right? According to, to Mark chapter 4 verse 9. Right? Uh, Jesus explains it by saying that nothing that goes in and through you and basically out into the porcelain pool can defile you. I mean that is, that is crudely... And, and accurately what he's meaning, he's saying goes into the latrine. That's what he means, right? He's saying nothing that passes through your body can defile you. Now, wait a minute. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were talking about ritual hand washings. But Jesus is talking about food. He's, he's taking things one step further. Not only is it, a, is it a mistake to think that if I don't wash my hands, I'm going to defile myself, but he says that even those external things that you take into your body, they cannot defile you because defilement comes from within. And then Mark does something that he almost never does. And when he almost never does it, you know that it's a big deal. He adds a parenthetical comment. He said, thus he declares all foods clean. This is a big deal, right? We need to pay attention to this. Jesus has just declared all foods clean. Now, it's one thing to dismiss these unbiblical traditions of the elders saying, you know what, washing these hands, you know, washing your pots, all this purity washings are pointless. It's another thing to go back and say, hey, you know what, Leviticus 11, where it talks about what food is clean and what food is unclean, you don't need to worry about that. Wow, are you serious? Did you just do that? Did that really just happen? 
Jesus is saying that food just passes through your digestive tract. It can't make you unclean. The food itself is not unclean. It doesn't matter what you take in or what you, or, you know, it doesn't add to or take away from the stain on your soul. So it doesn't matter. Therefore, you can eat bacon. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter. Eat whatever you want. And this goes beyond dismissing the tradition. Jesus is annulling God's, is he annulling God's law? Is he basically saying, you know what, this command I'm abolishing. It doesn't matter anymore. Is, is Jesus really doing what we think he's doing? Is he taking Thomas Jefferson's scissors to the book of Leviticus? I mean, is he cutting it out? How can he remove these food laws if they were commanded by God? Well, he does it in the same way that he helps to clarify Sabbath laws. By revealing himself to be the one true authority over the law, which as the Son of God he is. And second, by fulfilling ceremonial and civil laws in the Old Testament. Now we have to remember that the food laws pointed people towards the holiness of God and God's standard of devotedness that they were to have towards him. Alright, so focusing on the character of God and the level of holiness, devotedness, obedience that we were to have before him. That's ultimately what it's there to, to, to commit. But we know that we cannot fulfill the law. We cannot keep every single law. We are stained. And so Jesus came to accomplish, to fulfill, to complete these ceremonial and civil laws. As it says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might, become, uh, we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus lived a perfectly holy life, completely devoted to God doing the very things that these food laws were ultimately pointing to. And by living that perfectly obedient life, Jesus has fulfilled the law. Therefore, because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done, all foods are considered clean. Just like the Sabbath is not this rigid day, but a day meant to point towards the physical and spiritual rest that we are to have in him as Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, Religious ritual cannot cleanse us of this stain. Not our washings, not what we eat, not anything that is external. If you're here and you're thinking that you can somehow buy God's favor because you're, you come and you sing songs and you listen to a sermon and you, you do certain religious activities and you, you try to be a good person, you try to do more good than bad and, and you take communion, you've been baptized, all that stuff, it doesn't mean anything in and of itself. That, reli- that religious ritual will gain you nothing. You need to heed the words of Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 23 that, that if Christ died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if we are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used and according to these human precepts and teachings. This indeed has, may have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But listen to this. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's saying here, you can set up all the rules and regulations that you want. 
You can, can, you can deny yourself of everything that this world has to offer. And you can go and try to beat your body physically into submission. But it will not stop that defilement. It cannot clean your, that stain that remains on your soul. You will keep defiling yourself. Outward human effort cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh. It only promotes self-made religion that can save no one. So you think about why you're here. Why are you here? Are you trying to buy God's favor? Are you trying to cover up that stain? Are you trying to just pull the wool over God's eyes? Are you trying to wash it up yourself? Or do you recognize the reality of the situation and that you can do nothing about it? So defilement is not naturally understood, but it is real, and it, and it cannot be overcome by human effort. Fourth, because it is the result of an evil, unbelieving heart. Mark continues in verses 20 through 23. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. He says, your defilement is the result of having an evil, unbelieving heart. Now two weeks ago I, I explained what, this, what our heart is. It's basically our mind, our will, our affections, our conscience. All right? It's, it's your thoughts, it's your plans, it's your judgments, it's your discernment, it's your will, it's your actions, it's your feelings, it's, it's your longings, it's your desires and your passions and your dislikes, it's your imagination, it's your sense of right and wrong. That is what it means to, the Bible describes as your heart, it's all of your immaterial being, it's your soul. Jesus is saying that it's from your heart that all this evil comes. Now, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that evil is only for the worst of the worst. Evil is genocide. Evil is torture. Evil is rape. You know, evil is all those really atrocious things that are, are way out there. But it's not here. Evil is that which is opposed to God and His purposes or that which, from human perspectives, is harmful or non-productive. That's what evil means. That definition certainly fits this litany of evil that Jesus describes as coming out of the heart. He says that any time that you think or act on sinful lusts that go contrary to the nature, contrary to the purposes, contrary to the promises and commands of God, it is evil. He says any sexual activity outside of God's intended purpose for marriage is evil. Stealing, cheating on your spouse, lusting after what belongs to someone else, acting out of spite, which is malice, intending to deceive, all of this is evil. Foolishness, which does not mean being dumb, but rather having a moral and spiritual insensitivity, not knowing God or not desiring to know God, that is evil. All of these evil things come from within, from the heart, 
The heart is the seat of our sin. Evil comes from stained hearts, and we all have stained hearts. So don't think for a second that you are incapable of evil. Do not tell me that you have not committed one of these evil thoughts or actions that Jesus just listed. If you're thinking, well, no, I haven't, then you're proud and you've just done it. All right? So you're guilty. No one escapes this. And since every sin is, is, comes from failing to trust God and His Word or refusing to submit ourselves to God's plan, God's purposes, God's, God's wisdom, then every sin is an act of unbelief that comes from the heart. And so we see that this stain on our souls is actually an evil, unbelieving heart that produces defiling thoughts and words and actions. No one is exempt. No one is without excuse. The question is, do you really believe that? Do you honestly believe that? When you look at yourself, when you think about your actions, do you really believe that or do you make excuses for yourself? Compare yourself to Adolf Hitler, you know, or all these other really atrocious guys and say, oh, you know, I'm not that bad. Jesus has just put our stain under that microscope and despite all our efforts to cover it up or all our efforts to cleanse it, it cannot take it away. It will not take it away. We have to stop lying to ourselves about our sin. We have to stop making excuses. We have to call it what it is. It is sin. It is unbelief. It is evil. We have to stop blaming others or our circumstances or things that are external to us. We cannot just say that it's our personality type. It doesn't work. We have to start teaching one another and instructing our kids on the reality of sin and evil. Lest we be brainwashed by this atheistic, humanistic, psychologized, over-medicated self-esteem culture that seduces our sinful nature into this lie that we are basically good. We are not the standard of what is good. God is. And everything, Mother Teresa pales in comparison to God. Alright, we can't look to that and think, wow, that's all I need to be. We have to stop excusing our sin and unbelief, but instead hold one another accountable to this reality. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 warns believers to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, causing you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must help one another if we are to persevere over the flesh. But we don't do it alone. And the way we help one another is point, pointing one another towards this last truth. That though we don't naturally understand our true defilement and we can't overcome it by our own effort, our evil, unbelieving hearts, fifth, can only be overcome by Christ. Jesus, who, who calls us to listen and understand in verse 14, is the one who, by his authority and his sacrifice, can cleanse us from our sins. Over and over and over again, Mark has been establishing, he's been identifying, he's been revealing to us the true identity of Jesus. That he 
as is the Son of God, with all the authority of the Father, that Jesus teaches with authority. Jesus has the authority over sickness and death and disability. Jesus has authority over evil spirits. Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to bring a dead girl back to life. And we also see Jesus' authority expressed in this passage in verse 19. That the giver of the law is the one with the authority to fulfill the law, thus declaring all foods clean. By his very nature, Jesus has the authority to to overcome and to change our hearts' hearts. But Jesus doesn't do that with the snap of the fingers. Jesus does it by shedding his blood. Jesus lived that perfect, undefiled life. And he gave that life as a sacrifice for sin by dying on the cross. And three days later, he rose again from the grave to verify that God is satisfied by his sacrifice. That he considers it a substitute worthy to overcome his wrath against sin. And so those who repent and believe that they turn away from their stain to live dependently on Christ can now be reconciled to God. They can be reunited for all eternity with him. That's what Jesus gives us. Jesus offers himself as the perfect substitute for your stain. Like that bride with the filthy gown, you can trade your tattered, soiled dress to walk the aisle, to stand before the judge in a priceless, perfect, magnificent gown. But that gown is not yours. That gown is Christ's. Yours still has a stain. But through the years of your marriage, the Holy Spirit comes in. And he takes that soiled and that tattered gown and he begins to mend it. He begins to fix it and repair it and clean it to make it new, make it better. Until one day when you stand before Christ and you look down, you see that you had on the gown that you wore on that wedding day. Except it's not, this one's yours. It's been made like Christ's. This is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification and it takes our entire lives. So we are in one sense wearing Christ's gown until our gown becomes Christ's. You and I cannot do this. Only Christ can overcome our defilement. Friends, you do do not, please, do not be deceived. Do not miss this. Do not continue in ignorance and misunderstanding. This stain is real and all of your efforts cannot overcome it. We need to be cleansed of our evil, unbelieving hearts. But that can only happen by resting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so turn from your stain and follow the spotless Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes all things new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that though we have no ability in and of ourselves to to stand before you, you have made a way through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for us here right now that, 
that we would not continue in this false notion, this false ideology that we are basically good and all we need to do is, is for you to come in and clean up shop in, in a couple of ways through, through some random steps of obedience. But God, I pray that we would be acutely aware of our desperate need. And there is a stain on our souls. And if that stain is there, that we must continually fight against it. I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts that love Christ. That we seek after Him and we continue to hate, to turn from the stain and all its worldly developments. Yeah, we thank you that Christ is a perfect sacrifice. And may he be our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.